Amen. Amen. Y'all let them know how much you appreciate them leading us this morning in worship. And uh, always blessed by them. Revelation chapter 21 in your Bible. Revelation chapter 21. This is the uh, final message in the series, The King is Coming. Now, next Sunday, start a brand new series called When the Struggle Gets Real. And uh, super excited to be able to share with you how to overcome very common struggles in your life as well as uh, in my life. We're gonna see some of those struggles in the book of Psalms. So make sure you're here, you invite some folks, it'll be a great, great time in God's word. But this morning, we uh, kind of, I'm a little sad. I don't know if you are, I'm a little bit sad because this is gonna be the last Sunday that we're gonna have the redneck timeline behind me. Are y'all teary-eyed as well? I see a little mist out there, God bless you. But if you're a guest of ours, we've been using this timeline to give us a picture of what it's gonna look like towards the end of days. And so very quickly, just to kind of kick this message off again, let me go through it uh, pretty speedily, all right? So first of all, you and I are now living in the church age, and we use this building to represent the church, although the church is not a building, the church is a people. The church began after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and whenever the message of the gospel was delivered and people responded by faith and embraced Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit took up residence in their life, and they became members of the New Testament church. So right now, we are living in the church age, and we have the great great opportunity to invite others to be a part of the phenomenal church of the Lord Jesus. Now, the Bible teaches us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that there is a day coming when the church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Oftentimes, we describe that particular day as a rapture day. Uh, That occurs at the last trumpet sound. And the Bible says that we will go and we will meet the Lord in the air. Now, following the rapture, we will go to the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus. The judgment seat of Christ is the Bema seat, also known as the reward seat. You and I are going to be judged as followers of Jesus based upon not our sin, but our service to the Lord. And we'll be rewarded on that day for how we faithfully served the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we will suffer loss because we did not faithfully serve him. So following this particular time, we'll also be dressed based upon our righteous acts, the scriptures teach. And we're being dressed for what? Well, for the marriage supper of the lamb. The marriage supper of the lamb represented here by this plate is actually a celebration of Jesus who is the lamb and the church who is his bride. So this marriage supper of the lamb will be a phenomenal time when we will worship the Lord Jesus, celebrate what he has done for us by bringing us into a relationship with him. So we're looking forward to that marriage supper of the lamb. Now, the crazy thing is that while you and I as followers of Christ are going through the Bema seat and also the marriage supper of the lamb, upon the earth it's going to be completely different. It is going to be extremely difficult because after the rapture, the Bible says we will be ushered into what is known as the tribulation. And we have this little hourglass here to represent the tribulation because the tribulation is marked out by seven years. Now, the beginning of that seven years, the Antichrist will come into power, and with his charismatic leadership, he will actually lead the world to sign a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. And then it'll also give the nation of Israel the freedom to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. And so they'll be hard at work, everybody be celebrating, they'll look at the Antichrist as someone who is a great and powerful leader. But once that temple is rebuilt, which will take three and a half years, the Bible says that the Antichrist will actually sit down on the throne of the temple of God upon the earth. And he will declare himself to be God. And then the last three and a half years are described in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, Jacob, remember, became Israel. So the time of Israel's 
trouble. This will be whenever God will begin to throw great judgments down upon the earth. Many people will hear the gospel, some will respond, but most will with clenched fist continue to live in rebellion to the Lord. And they will face great, great times of judgment towards the end of that three and a half years and that seven year tribulation. Now, the crazy thing is that towards the end of the seven year tribulation, uh, there's gonna be this massive push to uh, basically kill all of those who are Israelites. The goal is to wipe them off the face of the map. So all the nations will gather around the nation of Israel and they will have you know, all of their armory ready to go to war uh, to get rid of Israel because they're blaming Israel for the judgment that they are experiencing and they think if we can get rid of Israel, we'll get rid of the judgment. So that's what they're gonna be doing. That's known in the scripture as the Battle of Armageddon. So all of that will be happening on the earth, but you and I will be up there clanking glasses, amen? We'll be with the Lord Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But at the end of that supper, the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus will actually call a great white horse, unlike this white horse, uh, which is James Dollars. And uh, he hasn't slept in six weeks because he hasn't had this. But anyway, uh, he'll have a white horse. And then the Bible says that he'll also give us a white horse. And we will come back to the earth with the Lord Jesus at his second coming. Now listen. Don't confuse the rapture and the second coming. They're two separate events when you study uh, the end times. So the second coming of Jesus, we come back with the Lord. He saves Israel. He dispels the nations with the word of his mouth. And then he ushers in a millennial kingdom. That millennial kingdom is a thousand year reign of Jesus here upon the earth where Jesus will give us those of us who come to know him, those of us at the marriage supper of the Lamb, he will give us places of authority throughout the world that we will represent him. Through that thousand years, we will see the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up. Many again will have an opportunity to respond to the Lord Jesus. And the amazing thing is at the end, you will discover that many will still reject him. And it's an amazing concept. Jesus on the earth in a glorified state and people will still end up rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens after that thousand year millennial reign? Two major things are described in the book of Revelation which will occur after that millennial kingdom reign. One is the great white throne judgment. We talked about that last week. That's the judgment of all unbelievers. So every single person who has not bowed a knee and given their heart to Jesus from creation to the end of the millennial kingdom will actually stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. They will be judged based upon their sin. And then they'll be sentenced, as the Bible says, to an eternity separated from God uh, in a real place called hell. We read all about that last week in our Bibles. But then the scripture describes something that is going to happen. And that is, the Lord is actually going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Now this is pretty phenomenal. When you and I dream about heaven or talk about heaven, typically this is the time frame that we're actually talking about. Many scholars describe it as the eternal state, the state in which the new heaven and new earth exist. And so when you think about heaven and you dream about it, typically that's what you're talking about and dreaming about. But that is to come. The Lord has that for us in our future. Now many of you know that uh, my older brother Lance, when he was seven, I was five, he died of a brain tumor. You've heard me share that story before. But during the time uh, of his life here on the earth, especially the very last uh, little bit of his time here on the earth, 
Uh, Paul Harvey, y'all ever heard of this guy before? Paul Harvey used to be a syndicated columnist. He actually wrote an article on my brother. And he wrote an article about a nurse that was tending to my brother during his final weeks on earth. And he wrote in the article that the nurse woke up, and I reread the article. You can find it on Google. It's amazing what Google will give you. Uh, in eternity, there will be no Google. But anyway, so I thought I would share that just in case you were curious. All right? But anyway, in this article, what happened is he described how the nurse woke up one night and was just burdened over the passing uh, or the soon passing of my brother. And so this particular nurse sat down and actually wrote out a poem about heaven with Lance as the main character in the poem. And interestingly, they actually took the poem and they put it into a coloring book and began to sell that coloring book to others. I remember growing up, we used to have stacks of them in our house and I would open them up and I would read through them. And it was this image or this picture of heaven and what it was gonna be like. And uh, one of the lines in that particular poem uh, was written about, my brother said this, and this is kind of from my brother's perspective. Uh, she wrote, I ran and jumped and played. My body was healthy and strong. I played with others my favorite games. I was happy all day long. And every single page, right? You turn every single page, you'll get to a page where they're fishing, right? You get to another page where, uh, and they tell me this too, right? Because I don't remember this, but they tell me that towards the end of his life, he was always talking about seeing Jesus, being in heaven, what it was going to be like. It's going to feed the animals there. Uh, was going to be fishing there. Be, he was a redneck is what he was, right? But anyway, he's going to be doing all of these things. He's dreaming about heaven. And really, that's what I want to preach on this morning, what heaven is going to be like, what the eternal state is going to be like. But here's the thing. Even with the poem, even with our imaginations, you and I, even with our best imagination, cannot scratch the surface of what the Lord really has for us in eternity. You and I do not possess the sufficient vocabulary to accurately describe what the Lord has in store for us. I heard it said once before that trying to describe heaven is like an infant in the womb trying to describe what their life is gonna be like when they're 25 years old. Can you imagine that? An infant in the womb can't describe or imagine what their life is gonna be. So much so, you and I have such a difficult time describing what it is going to be like. And yet this morning, we will see that John had an opportunity to have a vision of what this eternal state is gonna be like. And he describes it for us. And so we're gonna dig into that and see what heaven is like this morning. Y'all ready for it? Say amen. All right, good deal. Revelation 21 verses one through four uh, is our key text this morning. So let me get you to stand with me, if you will, in honor of God's word. Revelation chapter 21 verse one. You got it there, say amen. Listen to the Bible, this is awesome. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And then verse 4. And many of you know this, you've heard it before. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there'll no longer be any death, there'll no longer be any mourning, no longer any crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Let's bow together. Father, this morning, help us uh, just to grab hold of what we can concerning the new heaven and the new earth. And Lord, we thank you so much for the scripture that, you know, describes this time and promises this time to all of us who know you personally. And Father, the bottom line is we know 
that we did not earn a relationship with you because of our good works, because we had none. But you saved us by the grace of your son. But Father, even on top of that, you've promised us an eternity with you. God, we didn't deserve that either. But Lord, what a great, great promise you've given to us. Help us to live in light of it as citizens of that kingdom already. And that's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. So you go ahead and be seated this morning. So again, new heaven and new earth, big subject. So I'm only going to give you a few statements here, hopefully just to kind of launch you off into your own study of this concept of heaven and earth in the days ahead. All right, so jot these down. What is it going to be like? First of all, eternity is going to be a destination without any flaws. Eternity is going to be a destination without any flaws whatsoever. Revelation 21.1 again, the Bible says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no sea in them. Now, eyeball to eyeball for just a moment. Whenever you look at Revelation 21.1, it starts off with that little word, then. What's happening there is John is actually pointing back to what he'd just been discussing. So just prior to this, he was talking about the great white throne judgment. So he says, after the judgment of unbelievers, then there will be a new heaven and a new earth, which will be put in existence by the word of the mouth of the Lord. Now, the interesting thing here is when you think of heaven, oftentimes you think of God's home, but really this word heaven describes the atmospheric heavens, uh, the heavens where the sun, the moon, and the stars reside. Now, the Bible teaches us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. And then listen to this. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. So the heavens that you and I see every single night before we go to bed, maybe you walk outside, you look up and see it. All of that is going to be removed. And then there's going to be a new heaven in its place. And then the earth, the earth upon which you and I walk is actually going to be changed as well because the Bible says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10 that the elements of the earth will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all of its works will be burnt up. So the earth, as you and I know it, will cease to exist. There will be a new heaven, new atmosphere, and there will also be a new earth which the Lord will create. Now, this is pretty interesting. When you think about what's happening here in light of the whole of Scripture, you'll discover something about God creating the heavens and the earth. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the, somebody say it out loud, Yeah, earth, not a trick question, right? And then after he looked at it, he said, it is, it's good. Let's let's try that again, right? After he looked at it, he said, it is good. But then sin entered into the world. And whenever sin entered into the world, what we discover is that sin had its influence on absolutely everything that was created. Sin had its influence upon humanity. Uh, When sin was not present, death was not present. When sin was not present, uh, decomposition, decay, disease, none of these things were present. But with the entrance of sin came decomposition, disease, death, etc. All of this as a result of sin. But at the same time, the Bible even teaches us that creation has been influenced by sin. Before sin, there were no thorns, no thistles, no weeds. Everything was perfect. But when sin entered in, all of a sudden, the Bible describes the world in Romans chapter 8 as groaning for redemption. So think about that. Genesis 1-1, the earth is good. 
Just after sin, the earth began to groan. Groaning, longing for redemption, longing for newness. And then at the same time, the Lord promises here in Revelation 21 and verse 1 that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So it goes from good to groaning to glorious. That's what the Lord has in store for those of us who know Him personally. Now, what was interesting about this text to me is that last little phrase where it said there will be no more sea, no more sea. Now, what does this mean? No more sea, no more water? Uh, one commentator says it like this, I like it. He says, no more sea does not mean no more water. It simply indicates that the new, new earth will have a different arrangement as far as water is concerned. Three-fourths of our globe consist of water today, but this will not be the case in the eternal state. In fact, in John's day, the sea, now check this out, the sea meant danger. It meant storms and it meant separation from loved ones. So perhaps John in this little statement was giving us more than a geography lesson here. So think about that. There'll no longer be any sea. Uh, what could be uh, being said here? It could very well be being said by John that there will no longer be any danger in the new heaven and the new earth. At the same time, it could very well mean there'll be no longer separation between people because think about it. You have a continent here, you have a landmass here, you got a sea in between them. And oftentimes, especially in John's day, if they went from one to the other, they never came back. They never saw those people again. But in eternity, we will find that there is no sea. There is no separation. But instead, there will be a great fellowship among all followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see our loved ones there. I'll see Lance there. I'll be hanging out with Lance uh, on that particular day for eternity. I'll see others, people, people's funerals that I have preached right here in this particular building. I will see them in eternity. There will no longer be any separation. Man, it's going to be a place without any flaw. Sin completely eradicated. Sin's effects on our lives, completely gone. Sin's effects upon the creation, completely gone. There's a new heaven, and then there's also a new earth. All right, second thing, jot this one down. This is pretty awesome. In eternity, God's city will descend. In eternity, God's city will descend. Now, you've got to follow here. Look at verse 2. The Bible says, and I saw a holy city. Uh, new Jerusalem. Notice that, right? We're already using these words, new Right? Went from old to new. So new Jerusalem. Now notice where the city came from. Coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now when I first read this, I'm really beginning to look at it. I'm like, what in the world's going on here? There's this city coming down out of heaven, this heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, yes, without a doubt. Matter of fact, right now where God is, is in a heavenly city, a heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, the interesting thing is when you study the book of Hebrews, you'll discover that Abraham was looking for this city by faith. He was looking for a heavenly city in which God dwells. Now this city is not perceived by our eyes, but this is the city where God himself actually lives. And the scripture here says that this heavenly city, this Jerusalem, which also is described in Hebrews 12, 22 as the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, this city, John says, I saw this city, it was descending out of heaven. Now this is the new heaven. So we've got the new heaven, we've got the new earth, and then John looks up and he's like, and here comes a city out of God's home, the brand new heavenly Jerusalem. Oftentimes people see this, and I know this may, you know, rack your brains a little bit, but some people actually see this as a satellite city that hovers over the new heavens and the new earth. But this city is God's city, and the Bible says it's adorned as a bride for her husband. 
In other words, this city was prepared and put together by the Lord himself. In fact, many people say that it is in this city where Jesus promised his disciples and us that he was going to go and prepare a place for us. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I shall come again and receive you to myself. Where did Jesus go? To build. Many say he went to this heavenly city and he built upon his father's house. And this will be the city which will descend out of the heavens. All right, look again at verse 3. The scripture says, and I heard a loud voice. Everybody with me say amen. All right, so the Bible says, and then I heard a loud voice. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. All right, so I bought an eyeball here for just a moment. What is he talking about when he says, okay, behold, because you got this city coming down. Kind of put yourself in John's sandals for a second. You see the city coming down, and he's like, behold, the tabernacle of God. And so he looks, and he sees what? He sees this tabernacle of the Lord. Now, what is this? Because when I read the word tabernacle, what it does for me as a person who's, you know, read through the Bible is it makes me think of the earthly tabernacle. You remember that tabernacle God told the people of Israel to build in the Old Testament? He gave them all of the plans. He's like, here's what it needs to look like. Here's how big it needs to be. Here how high the curtains need to be, what color they need to be. Here's where the furniture needs to be. And then I want you to place this uh, box, this heavenly box, so to speak, in the middle of this massive room known as the holy place. And then I want you to divide that in two by large curtain. And beyond that curtain, put the holy of holies. And that was the place where God dwelled with his people. And then he said, inside the Holy of Holies, put the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark of the Covenant, put the Ten Commandments, a copy of them. Y'all following me say yes? Why was God so specific about all of this building? It is because God was looking at the true heavenly tabernacle and giving instructions on earth on how to build it. Because the earthly tabernacle was a copy or a picture of the true heavenly tabernacle. And let me go a step further with you on this because this is pretty slick. In the earthly tabernacle, there was one day a year set aside known as the Day of Atonement. That was the day in which the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies beyond the curtain. And they would actually tie a rope around his leg and put bells on his feet. Because if he walked in with sin in his life into the Holy of Holies, he would die. And the other priests who were in line listening, if they didn't hear the bells ringing, they would pull him out. He would be dead. Would you like to be the next high priest? Say amen. No, I'd be like, man, I think it's your turn. Don't you think? I think it's your turn. But no, that's what they, but they would go into this place known as the Holy of Holies, and they would carry in with them a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And that sacrifice was the blood of a lamb. And so the priest would, you know, to kind of give you the imagery, he would put his hand on the lamb and say, you know, Lord, we're going to treat this lamb as if it has committed all the sins of Israel for this year. We're going to, and because the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. So, so we're going to slit this lamb's throat and allow this lamb's blood to be shed on behalf of the people and their sins over the past year. And then he takes this blood with him into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles it really covering the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And what is awesome is that when the blood is applied to the top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, that blood is actually covering over the law which is found inside the Ark which the people had broken. Y'all follow? All of this, the Bible says, is a picture of what it's like in heaven. Now, the interesting thing, uh, too much information, not enough time, but I want you to listen. The interesting thing is this. When Jesus came, he came, and the Bible says that he's our high priest. 
but not once did he ever go into the Holy of Holies of the earthly tabernacle. So how can he be a high priest? In fact, many people argued against it. They said he cannot be a high priest because he is not from the lineage of Aaron. Aaron began the lineage of the priest as well as the high priest. So he said he can't even be a high priest. You can't call him a high priest. But then the Hebrew author says this, he is from a greater covenant, a greater priesthood. And that is the priesthood of a man by the name of Melchizedek. It's in the book of Hebrews. And whenever you trace his lineage, his lineage is actually greater than the Arianic lineage. And it gives us proof that Jesus could be our high priest. But the question is, what temple did he go into? The Bible says he died on the cross at Calvary, was buried, resurrected, ascended into the heavens. And when he went into the heavens, can I read you a verse? Hebrews 9, 24, Christ entered not the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Jesus, when he ascended into the heavens, he walked through the heavenly city of Jerusalem, he walked into the heavenly tabernacle of God. He walked into the holy of holies where the Father was, and he sat down on the true heavenly ark of the covenant. And he sat there not to spread the blood of a lamb because he was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And he sat down to cover over our sins. Somebody say amen, because that's pretty slick, right? Now, John says, I saw a heavenly city. It was coming down out of heaven. This was after the new heaven and new earth were in his sights. And then I saw a tabernacle, and the Bible says, and God dwelt among them. Listen, when you see verse 1, you see the fact there's no separation because of the sea between people, right? There's perfect, flawless fellowship that we will have with one another in heaven, but also because God comes and dwells with man. There will be perfect fellowship with God for all of eternity. Can you imagine it, by the way, what it's going to be like to be in unhindered fellowship with God? No sin holding you back. Can you even imagine what it would be like if we fellowship unhindered? No insecurities. No, I wonder what she's thinking. No, I wonder what he said about me. None of that. Perfect fellowship. New heaven, new earth, heavenly city, heavenly tabernacle, God himself among men. What a phenomenal time frame this is going to be. This is what John's talking about. This is what our Bible describes as the eternal state. Last thing, you got to jot it down. Those spending eternity with God will experience supreme contentment. Supreme contentment. Now, I'll be honest with you. Uh, this particular passage, verse 4, is one that is very popular, right? Many people talk about it. He's going to wipe away everybody's tears. And he is. So let's look at verse 4, what the Bible says. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll no longer be any death. No longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, I love what Erwin Lutzer said about this verse. I'm going to give you a quick quote here, a little lengthy, all right? But listen. He says, interestingly, the Greek text says literally that God will wipe away every tears, uh, or every tear, rather, out of our eyes, as if to imply that every single bit of sorrow and every bit of regret will be wiped away. The point is that God will get to the very heart of what troubled us on earth. It's not as if God will necessarily take a tissue and wipe our tears away. Rather, he will give us understanding about his ways and about his purposes. He will remind us that our sin has been paid for. And at the same time, as far as those who are not in heaven whom we hoped to see there, he will take away the cause of our sorrow by helping us see that he did all things justly. 
Goodness gracious, he's going to wipe away every single tear. And don't you love it, man? No more pain. Anybody in pain this morning when you woke up, you had a hard time getting up? Just raise your hand. Uh, you older people, raise your hand. I know you're in pain, right? right? No, I just turned 39, man. I don't even like getting up anymore. I'm like, I'm starting to ache in places I've never ached before, right? But when we get to heaven, no more pain, man. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears. All of that is done away with. Now, the interesting thing is, um, and I, I want you to catch this. Every single person born on the earth has a desire for eternity, everyone. Matter of fact, the Bible says God has written eternity on the hearts of men. So we have this desire in our lives. That's why so often we have this, uh, this concept in our hearts. It's like, there's got to be more to life than this. Where does that concept come from? It's because we have eternity written on our hearts. Matter of fact, there are uh, very popular individuals who've made boo-coodles of money. I think of one athlete who's a quarterback, and uh, he, he talks about all the championships that he's won. He talks about all the monies that he's made, talks about how beautiful his wife is, and then he looks into the camera and says, but I still feel like something's missing. What, what's going on with that? He has eternity written in his heart. He has this desire for more, and he doesn't know where it comes from, and he doesn't know how to feel it. Now, the Bible teaches that when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that discontented heart is given the opportunity to taste contentment with the Lord. But I want to say this to you. It's only a taste. It's only a taste. That's why even some of you here today are still Followers of Jesus, but you're still thinking, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be something more. That's why some of you here this morning, you're, you're still envious of your, you know, your neighbor. You're, you're still jealous of other. Why? Because you think, if I could just have that stuff, then this discontentment will be gone. No, ma'am. No, sir. That's not the case. You taste of contentment when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. You long for complete and fulfilling contentment in eternity. And the Bible says God is going to overwhelm you with it in the eternal state. Can you imagine that? To never wake up with any want for anything. Never see something and have an evil desire saying, man, I wish I had that. No more lust. No more sinful cravings. All of those completely gone. All discontentment erased. Complete contentment replaced. What an awesome truth that is. So what's this place going to be like? It's place in heaven. Y'all want to know? Say yes. What's it going to be like there? Anybody want to know? Y'all want to know? All right, good deal. What's funny is I ask, and it's always the exact same people who respond. So even when I ask again, it's still the same people who respond. Do y'all want to know more about heaven? I still don't believe one of you. You know I'm looking right at you too. Don't smile at me. Hey, contrary to popular belief, check this out. When you die, you don't become a chubby baby who has little bitty wings hovering on a cloud, playing a violin. Can I just say something? That would be cool for about five minutes. Are y'all listening? I'll be like, what am I doing here and where is everybody? Right? It's not going to be like that. But it will be a place of worship. It'll be a place of singing. Listen, it's amazing. The more contentment that you find in your relationship with Jesus Christ today, the greater your worship will be here today. And when you find complete contentment in eternity, your worship is going to be turned volume blast like never before. And by the way, uh, you'll be able to sing on key in heaven. Right, right, right. Because some of you, I know, you're afraid to sing. Now, you sing like crazy in the truck. But you come in here and you're afraid because you don't sound that good. And you don't. And we appreciate you thinking of us. But when we get to heaven, I'm going to be looking at you and going, oh, good, now you can sing now, boy. 
Scripture says it's a place of fellowship with God, with one another. Listen to this. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. I've got to read it. He showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So what does that mean? We're going to be eating in heaven. Somebody say amen. Hey, check this out. You can eat without counting points. I thought some of you would be more excited about that, all right? There'll no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants, that's us, we will serve Him. So what will you do? We'll be worshiping, we'll be hanging out with each other, we'll be eating, there'll be massive river, the water of life, flowing right down the middle of heaven. We'll have this time with one another, and then we'll serve the Lord Jesus as well and never grow weary. And then the Bible says, and they will see His face. Now, real quick, the Bible says in the Old Testament that man cannot see the face of God and live. His glory is so weighty that if we had an opportunity to see his face, his glory would crush us to bits. But because we have brand new bodies, because we are in the eternal state with God in a flawless place, we will be fitted in that moment to see the fullness of his glory. There'll no longer be any night. They'll have no need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Remember, the new heaven isn't going to have the sun, the moon, and the stars in it. The Bible says here that actually what will happen is that God himself will illumine the place. And they will reign forever and ever. Hey, listen, uh, eternity is going to be a place of ceaseless activity, all in perfect harmony and under the leadership of God, our Father. All right. I got to quit. I'm going to read one more to you. Whoever came up with the idea of church being an hour? Was it y'all? C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. I just want you to listen to the quote, and then um, I'm going to stop. Our whole education today tends to fix our minds on this world when the real want for heaven is present in all of us, but we don't recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If we find ourselves, I love this part, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. (laughs) Pretty awesome, yeah? Ah. All right, I got to quit, but I want you to listen to this. One thing that we can do now that you will not be doing for eternity. One thing. Anybody know what it is? Sharing the gospel. Isn't that amazing? The one thing in eternity that we will not be doing is sharing the gospel with those who don't know the Lord. But what I want you to know is that's why Jesus says, listen, church, your number one priority, you go into all the world and you preach the gospel. You make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, right? So he says, go and do this. Why would we be encouraged to do this? Here's the reason why, please listen. Because every single person that you lead to faith in Jesus Christ, you are adding another voice in the choirs of heaven to praise your Savior. Can you imagine that, right? Hey, let me give you another truck analogy, right? So I drive in the truck, put my tunes in, listen to a little need to breathe, right? So I'm jamming. But sometimes it ain't loud enough. You know what I'm talking about? That's why I tinted my window so y'all wouldn't see what I do inside my truck. 
but I turn it up. And every time, it's pretty interesting. You're, I don't know if yours does this, but in my, in my truck, every time I turn the knob, it has a little click to it. You can kind of feel it, right? Every person that you lead to faith in Jesus, you're turning the volume up in heaven. Wow, 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 wow. So how much praise do you really want Jesus to receive? Don't get sidelined and overwhelmed with the careless things of this world and miss what the Lord wants to do with you right now in this age. Amen? Let's bow. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for our time together. Speak to hearts as you see fit. In Jesus' name. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Nobody's looking around this morning. But you say, Levi, man, the Lord's been speaking to me through this series, and, and I need to give my life to Christ. I want to follow him. Listen, most important decision you'll ever make, and we want to help you with it. Very simple. The Bible says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you're here today and you need to give your life to Christ, would you just pray something like this in your heart as I pray out loud? Just say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And I'm trusting that Jesus died for me. And I'm believing the resurrection today. And I want to begin following him. Cleanse me and give me a brand new life. Your head's bowed, your eyes closed. If that's the prayer of your heart, first step of obedience is baptism. We don't baptize people because we're Baptist. We baptize them because the Bible says to do so. And so listen, if you've given your heart to Jesus Christ this morning or in the weeks past gone by, but you need to be baptized, man, I want to invite you to come forward during this time of invitation. We're all going to stand and sing in just a moment. You just leave the place where you've been seated. You can ask folks to get out of your way. They'll be fine with it. They'll actually be excited for you. And you come forward. We want to set up an opportunity for you to be baptized in the days ahead. Or God may be calling you to join this church body, get plugged in with this fellowship, partner with us in this great mission to make disciples everywhere. Father, we give you the invitation and we believe as only you can that you're working hearts. And that's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand to our feet while we sing. You come this morning if God's calling you. How?